Before I get going with this episode, a word of caution. This is one of the saddest stories I've ever written about. I'd been thinking about Victoria's case long before I wrote about it on my blog, and I'd put off covering it because I only knew the basic facts, and I wasn't sure if I could handle it. I'll just say that covering it in full didn't change my outlook. This case was as awful as I originally believed it to be, but there was also a lot I didn't know about it. While there are few words to describe the heinousness of this case, I don't believe we should shy away from covering it or cases like it. To deprive these victims of their voices in death would be to fail them as they were failed in life. Equally important are the lessons society can learn from cases like this one. Disappointingly, the statistics on rates of child maltreatment in New Mexico since Victoria's murder are not particularly encouraging. I'll go over a few of the figures later in this episode. This episode does also contain some upsetting and graphic descriptions. I never go into more detail than is necessary out of respect for the victims, but I also believe that some details are important in order to accurately portray the severity of the crime. I'll give a warning before particularly difficult parts. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 22, The Murder of Victoria Martins. Victoria was born on August 23, 2006, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her mother, Michelle Martins, was originally from New York and moved to Texas before settling in Albuquerque. The identity of Victoria's biological father is not publicly known. Victoria also had a half-brother, Matthew, who was born in 2008. Thankfully, Matthew was with his father at the time of his sister's murder, so he won't feature very much in this episode. In 2016, Victoria was living with her mother at the Arroyo Villas apartment complex on Albuquerque's west side and attended Petroglyph Elementary School. She loved gymnastics, swimming, and playing with her friends. In August 2016, 35-year-old Michelle started a new job at Smith's Food and Drug in their deli. According to her parents, John and Pat Martins, Michelle was a hard worker and loved her children deeply. They also insisted that Michelle never drank alcohol or did drugs. Just three months earlier, Michelle passed the drug test new employees were required to take in order to work at Smith's. I just want to point out here that I don't doubt what Michelle's parents said about how much she loved her kids. However, in the months leading up to Victoria's murder, there was a lot going on in Michelle's life that John and Pat didn't know about. In fact, Fabian Gonzalez, Michelle's boyfriend she met a month before the murder, told Michelle not to tell her parents about him. By the time Pat and John found out how bad things had gotten in Michelle's home, it was too late. They believed that the people Michelle let into her life took advantage of her trusting nature. Laura Bobbs, Victoria's godmother, would later say in an interview with Albuquerque's KRQE News, Michelle didn't change until these people inducted themselves into her life. What kind of power they had over her, I don't know. In March 2016, Michelle called the Children, Youth, and Families Department, the CYFD, also known as Child Protective Services in other states, to report that her boyfriend at the time, David Hernandez, had tried to kiss Victoria. 
and not in a way a father figure would kiss a child. Hernandez had a history of sexually abusing children, including several in his own family. He had also been arrested for attempting to kidnap a four-year-old girl in 2013. However, he had never been charged with sexual abuse. He was charged for attempted kidnapping, but the charges ended up being dropped. It's unclear how much Michelle knew about his past predatory behavior. In a later interview with the police, Michelle said that as soon as she found out about Hernandez attempting to kiss her daughter, she broke up with him and kicked him out of her apartment. CYFD referred Michelle's report to the Albuquerque Police Department. However, the APD did not investigate further, saying that they could not take action over an attempted kiss. Unfortunately, somebody attempting to do something, such as kissing the child, is not a crime, said former APD spokesperson Fred Duran. After Victoria's murder, Duran caused problems for the APD when he lied to the Albuquerque Journal, saying that Michelle's report had been investigated, when in reality, it had not. Michelle would call the CYFD a total of five times in 2016. However, no action ever resulted from these reports. The CYFD would later conclude that after conducting an internal review, they followed protocol and sufficiently investigated each report and could find no proof that any abuse or neglect had occurred. But five calls in eight months to an agency like CYFD, regardless of what the calls were about, seems to me like a situation that would warrant some extra attention. In July 2016, Michelle met 31-year-old Fabian Gonzalez on the dating website Plenty of Fish. Gonzalez, who was a regular methamphetamine user, was a repeat offender in New Mexico with a long criminal record. In August 2014, he was charged with assaulting his former girlfriend. He pleaded the assault charge down to two misdemeanor charges and was sentenced to just two years of supervised probation. His record also included a felony child abuse charge, driving while intoxicated, and resisting arrest. I couldn't find what happened regarding any of these other charges. He moved into Michelle's apartment very soon after they met, and began bringing friends over to do drugs while Michelle was at work and the kids were at school. Michelle should have been far more discerning about who she let into her home, especially after what happened with David Hernandez. Even though Michelle was usually out when Gonzalez and his friends were doing math, I don't doubt that she knew he was using the drug, as the effects are pretty hard to miss. Gonzalez's cousin, 31-year-old Jessica Kelly, had just been released from prison on August 15th. Kelly also had a long criminal history and had been in and out of prison for over a decade. She had previously been convicted on two felony drug charges and a charge of conspiracy to commit rape. Like Gonzalez, Kelly was also a frequent meth user. After Kelly's release from prison, Gonzalez invited her to move into Michelle's apartment. He charged her $50 for rent, an agreement Michelle was unaware of. Jessica Kelly should never have been allowed to stay in Michelle's apartment, especially with her children around. Things get a little confusing here, but I'll do my best to lay it out in a way that makes sense. 
The version Michelle gave to the police of what happened to Victoria on the evening of August 23rd turned out to be false, but two years passed before this revelation came to light. By that time, the public's view of the case was pretty set in stone. August 23rd, 2016 was Victoria's 10th birthday. John and Pat Martins recalled talking to her on the phone that afternoon about how she and her friends had celebrated her birthday at school. This would be the last time they would speak to their granddaughter. At 4.30 a.m. on August 24th, police arrived at the Arroyo Villas apartments after receiving calls from Michelle's neighbors regarding a disturbance. Michelle and Gonzalez were outside. It appeared they had been in some sort of physical altercation. Michelle had a deep gash on her face, and Gonzalez had a cut above his left eye. Jessica Kelly was still inside. When the police called for her to come out, she bolted the door and jumped off the second-floor apartment's balcony, fracturing her ankle. Once police apprehended the three of them, they entered the apartment. There was smoke coming from the bathroom, so they went to investigate. Just a warning here, this is where it gets very upsetting. Laying in the bathtub was the lifeless body of Michelle's daughter, Victoria. She had been dismembered, partially wrapped in a sheet, and set on fire. APD Chief Gordon Eden would later refer to the homicide as, quote, the most gruesome act of evil I have ever seen in my career a complete disregard for human life, and a betrayal by a mother. Michelle, Gonzalez, and Kelly were taken to the police station for questioning. Gonzalez was interrogated for nine hours. The entire time, he insisted he did not rape or kill Victoria. Kelly refused to be interviewed without a lawyer. When Michelle was interviewed, however, everything changed. These are the main points that came out of Michelle's quote-unquote confession. Victoria had been injected with meth in an attempt to quote, calm her down, so that Gonzalez and Kelly could rape her. Michelle said that she watched as Gonzalez and Kelly raped, strangled, stabbed, and dismembered Victoria. Michelle told the detectives that she had previously sought out men on the internet to come to her home and have sex with Victoria so she could watch. Michelle confessed to committing the most horrific acts imaginable against her own daughter, along with Gonzalez and Kelly. What resulted was a media circus and a justifiably enraged public. On September 8, 2016, Michelle, Gonzalez, and Kelly were indicted on multiple charges, including but not limited to intentional abuse of a child, aggravated criminal sexual penetration, murder, and tampering with evidence. Michelle's bond was set at $1.5 million cash, and Gonzalez and Kelly's was set at $1 million each. However, building a case against Michelle and Gonzalez based on Michelle's confession was proving extremely difficult. This was because other evidence, including DNA samples, information from Victoria's autopsy report, as well as phone records, pointed the investigation in a very different direction. On June 29, 2018, nearly two years after the murder, District Attorney Raul Torres, who took office in January 2017, gave a press conference regarding the investigation. The new information pretty much turned the case upside down. 
His office came to these conclusions after a year and a half of analyzing DNA evidence, cell phone data, and conducting numerous interviews with independent eyewitnesses. The revelations were as follows. Victoria was killed between 7 p.m. and 8.45 p.m. when Michelle Martins and Fabian Gonzalez were at a house in the South Valley, meaning they were not at Michelle's apartment when Victoria was murdered. DNA evidence was discovered on Victoria's body that implicated a fourth unknown man. I recognize that these revelations are not consistent with the public's perception of what happened to Victoria Martins, but I want to share this information with you to help the community understand where this case is going and ultimately assist in the apprehension of everyone involved in this horrific crime, Torres said. This is what's believed to have really happened to Victoria on August 23, 2016. I've added some pieces I found from other news sources, but the main source of this timeline is the district attorney's office. You can also find this timeline on my blog post on this case. This might seem a little repetitive, but bear with me. At 11.40 a.m., Gonzalez and Michelle go to a house to buy drugs. Victoria is at school. At 2.30 p.m., Gonzalez and Michelle go back to Michelle's apartment, but leave again soon after. At 2.36 p.m., Michelle texts her mother, asking if she can meet Victoria at the bus stop after school. At 2.37 p.m., Michelle's mother calls her, but Michelle doesn't answer. Gonzalez convinces Michelle to ask Kelly to pick Victoria up from the bus stop. Michelle is unsure, but Gonzalez tells her it's okay. At 3 p.m., Michelle and Gonzalez go to another person's home. At 3.37, Michelle sends a text to Kelly, asking her to pick Victoria up at the bus stop, but she gets no reply. She texts her again half an hour later, but still doesn't get a response. At 4.35, Victoria is dropped off by the school bus. She then goes home. I'm not sure if she walked home alone or if Kelly did end up meeting her. At 5.07, Michelle and Gonzalez are at Michelle's apartment. At 6.05, Victoria goes to a gas station with Gonzalez. At 6.09, Kelly has a phone call with her sister. She tells her that she's, quote, tweaking and hallucinating. Tweaking means feeling agitated or excited as a result of amphetamine use. At 6.15, Victoria and Gonzalez return to the apartment from the gas station. At 6.30, Michelle and Gonzalez go to a home in Paradise Hills, a three-minute drive away from Michelle's apartment. They're gone for about half an hour. At 7.05, neighbors at the Arroyo Villas apartments see Victoria alive. Kelly and Victoria have a short conversation with two neighbors. At 7.38, Michelle and Gonzalez leave the apartment again. At 8.47, Michelle and Gonzalez return to the apartment. They sit in the car and listen to music. At 8.48, Kelly is seen carrying Victoria's body, which is wrapped in a blanket, down the stairs outside of the apartment. She turns back when she sees Michelle and Gonzalez have returned. A short time later, Michelle and Gonzalez enter the apartment. Kelly tells Gonzalez that Victoria is dead. Michelle is not there for this conversation. They discuss concealing the murder, cleaning up the crime scene, and burying the body. Gonzalez distracts Michelle. 
He then said that he put her to bed. In the bathroom, Gonzalez and Kelly removed Victoria's arms with a knife. Gonzalez then removed some of her organs. They placed her remains in a trash bag and cleaned up the blood as best as they could. They then put the remains in the bathtub. Michelle is in bed while all of this is happening. Gonzalez then got into bed with Michelle. Kelly comes into the bedroom and attacks Gonzalez and Michelle with an iron, probably in some kind of meth-induced rage. They sustain the wounds on their faces, seen in their mugshots. Sometime between 1am and 4.30am, Kelly removed the smoke detectors in the apartment. Shortly before the police arrived, Michelle and Gonzalez left the apartment. Kelly remained inside and set fire to Victoria's remains in the bathtub. The police arrive at 4.30am. They called for Kelly to come out of the apartment, which is when she locks the door and jumps off the balcony. All three are taken into custody. The police enter the apartment and find Victoria's charred and dismembered remains. Despite the condition of Victoria's body, the coroner determined that her cause of death was manual strangulation. As I mentioned earlier, Michelle said during her interview that Victoria had been injected with meth. This turned out to be false. Her autopsy did not show any signs of the drug. A low level of ethanol was detected, but this was attributed to having formed during decomposition. It was initially believed that Victoria had been raped the night she was killed, but after re-examining the initial autopsy report, it was determined that this was not the case. In totality, these three experts have over 100 years of experience. They determined that no sexual assault took place. Despite that, early on, the autopsy report in this case indicated that there was sexual assault said Jessica Kelly's attorney, Mark Ernest. Victoria did, however, have an STD. Torres said that this was a result of sexual abuse that Michelle had reported in the weeks or months before the murder. She took immediate steps to identify and notify the relevant law enforcement officials, and as far as we know, severed contact with that person, Torres said. But if she did report it, why was nothing done to protect Victoria? I couldn't find any mention of any agency proactively investigating Michelle's report that her daughter had been raped. Contrary to Michelle's confession, Torres also said that there was no evidence that Victoria had been trafficked for sex. When reading the transcript of Michelle's confession she gave right after the murder, Torres also noticed that many of her statements were contradictory, and that she often answered questions with mm-hmm or uh-huh, as though she wasn't totally sure of what she was saying. It indicated she was being fed information, and just agreeing with statements, rather than providing facts of her own. The DA's office sought out forensic psychiatrist Michael Wellner to analyze Michelle's police interview, as well as interview acquaintances of hers, to get a better grasp of her personality and behavior. Wellner came to the conclusion that Michelle is a very vulnerable person. Those he interviewed described her as a, quote, people pleaser. According to her lawyer, Michelle has a lower than normal IQ. It was clear to Wellner that the officers interviewing Michelle presented themselves as being on her side. This led to her admitting to having witnessed the crime, without realizing she was incriminating herself. 
Wellner said, quote, In the course of questioning her about specifics and going over details, the officers revealed certain details within the case that Michelle later incorporated into her story. Incorporating them into her story gave the impression that there was some legitimacy to what she was saying. From studying Michelle's interview, Wellner concluded that specific details were entirely accounted for by what she learned in the interrogation itself, opposed to what she knew going in. After the revelations came out that Michelle's confession was false, and she was not in the apartment when Victoria was killed, the murder charges against her were dropped. On June 29, 2018, Michelle accepted a plea deal, pleading guilty to one count of reckless child abuse resulting in death. She faces 12 to 15 years in prison. She's due to be sentenced later this year. Torres said that while Michelle is not a murderer, she did contribute to a situation that allowed her daughter to be killed, and she needs to be held accountable for that. On January 7, 2019, Kelly accepted a plea deal. It was something Torres initially hoped to avoid, but he came to the decision in the hopes that it would strengthen his case against Gonzalez, as well as help find out who John Doe is. Kelly pleaded no contest to six charges, meaning that she's not admitting guilt, but she's not contesting the state's version of events either. These charges include child abuse resulting in death, great bodily harm, aggravated assault, tampering with evidence, and conspiracy to commit tampering with evidence. The previous rape charges against her were dropped. She also agreed to testify against Gonzalez, as well as in the State versus John Doe case. Kelly's sentencing hearing took place last month, on April 28, 2022. She was ultimately sentenced to 44 years, at 37 years old, she'll finish her sentence in 2066, when she's 81. Gonzalez has not taken a plea deal and will go to trial. His trial was supposed to be in January of this year, but was delayed due to COVID. It's currently scheduled for July. As with Michelle, the DA's office dropped the murder and rape charges against him in the fall of 2018. He is charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death and eight counts of tampering with evidence. Gonzalez was released from jail in November 2019. I believe he's currently under house arrest while he awaits his trial. Deputy DA Greer Rose was strongly against his release. She has since pointed to his criminal record, which includes a felony child abuse charge and assault charge from before Victoria's murder, as reason to keep him in jail. He has missed several court dates and violated the court-ordered conditions of his release. The judge rejected the state's arguments for keeping Gonzalez in jail, reasoning that he no longer faces the severe charges he once did. He said that they did not convincingly demonstrate that he poses a danger to the community. Rose immediately filed to appeal this decision. I was pretty shocked by the decision to release Gonzalez. He not only helped Kelly in trying to cover up the murder, he also dismembered Victoria's dead body. Anyone who's capable of doing that, not to mention to a 10-year-old girl, needs to be somewhere they can be kept an eye on, in my view. 
In December 2021, Judge Cindy Leos decided that at Gonzalez's trial, the prosecution will be allowed to show the jury the photos of Victoria's remains that were taken by the medical investigator's office. The photos are of, quote, contents of a bag containing Victoria's dismembered arms, her heart, and other organs, in addition to deep cuts, burns, and other injuries on her body. Gonzalez's attorney, Stephen Ahrens, argued that showing the photos at the trial would prejudice the jury against Gonzalez, as the photos would upset any normal person. I recognize that this is going to be difficult for the jury, but it is relevant. The state will still have to prove that tampering took place, Judge Leo said. Torres's office has filed a fourth indictment against a John Doe for Victoria's murder. The following is an account given by Kelly about who this John Doe likely is, but we can't really know the trustworthiness of the account. Kelly said that the night of the murder, a man came to the door asking for Favo, which is Gonzalez's street name. The man was extremely angry. Kelly told him that Gonzalez wasn't there. It was just her and Victoria. He came into the apartment and killed Victoria as revenge for something drug or gang-related. He said to Kelly that Gonzalez, quote, messed up and knows what he did. Torres has said that the DNA belonging to John Doe, which was found on Victoria's back, likely came from skin, sweat, or saliva cells. It cannot be compared to samples in the Federal Combined DNA Index System. Therefore, swabs need to be collected from each person of interest in order to rule him out as a suspect. The hunt for John Doe is currently ongoing. Gonzalez's attorney, on the other hand, does not believe that there's a fourth suspect. Gonzalez has placed the blame fully on Kelly. It's expected that this will be the route his attorney will take at his trial. In September 2017, John and Pat Martins filed a lawsuit against the city of Albuquerque for not investigating the claims made by Michelle that her previous boyfriend tried to kiss Victoria. The Martins' attorney, Jason Bowles, said, quote, An adult man kissing a young girl, and that's dismissed as not important to investigate. That's shocking. But if you go further and know what they knew in their own files, they could have connected. This guy's a pedophile. He went on to argue that if the police had bothered looking into this boyfriend, they would have found that he had been arrested in 2013 for attempted kidnapping. In February 2021, the lawsuit was dismissed by a district court judge as it was filed before the revelations from the DA's office came out. Bulls said that they planned to appeal the dismissal. This case was really difficult to cover, mainly because of the nature of the murder, but also the complex twists and turns the investigation took as a result of Michelle's false confession. But the basic facts of this case are not complicated. Victoria suffered horribly in her final moments. She was failed by everybody who should have protected her. I realize it's essential that those involved face appropriate charges, but Victoria's death was avoidable, and while those responsible must be prosecuted, the conditions that led to this horrific crime must also be examined and acted upon. 
CYFD claimed that they followed protocol and sufficiently investigated each of Michelle's reports, which she made to them before the murder. But if this is true, and what happened to Victoria still happened, then it seems reasonable to say that the CYFD is in dire need of reform. According to a new report by analysts at New Mexico's Legislative Finance Committee, the LFC, on rates of child maltreatment in the state in the last few years, New Mexico is among the nation's worst. Dan McKay, who writes for the Albuquerque Journal, quoted the following statistics from the LFC's memo. The maltreatment rate in New Mexico stood at 16.9 per 1,000 children in 2019, the sixth highest in the nation and well above the national average of 8.9. The rate of child maltreatment fatalities in New Mexico more than doubled from 2.3 per 1,000 children in 2019 to 4.8 in 2020. New Mexico has the second highest percentage of children suffering from repeat maltreatment in the nation. In 2019, about 12% of the state's children had another case of maltreatment within six months, higher than every state but New York. On October 29, 2016, a memorial service was held for Victoria at Copper Point Church in Albuquerque. More than 600 people attended the service. Many of them wore purple, Victoria's favorite color. The former governor of New Mexico, Susana Martinez, and APD chief Gordon Eden both spoke at the service. Each year on Victoria's birthday, also, heartbreakingly, the day she died, a memorial has taken place. The crowd released dozens of balloons and blew bubbles into the sky. After the sun went down, they sang happy birthday. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please give me a 5-star rating and review on iTunes or Spotify, and subscribe wherever you're listening now. If you'd like to take your support further, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash talkmurder. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes. You can follow me on Instagram to see photos from each case. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time.